This is the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture Podcast with our series, God Rules. Women want more rights, more access to abortion, more freedom, not less. Hell is knowing your truth and lacking the courage to live it. I don't care. I have lots of things I disagree with about the Bible. Why are we doing even a series on the Ten Commandments? The law was always meant to communicate God's character and God's truth and the reality of how God made the world. An articulation of our purpose, what it means to be human according to God's intent. Here's what happens when you balk at structure, balk at God's guidelines and boundaries that he's posted. It's not good what takes its place. So when God gives us these instructions, basically it, it, it implies you're a bunch of lying, fornicating, self-worshiping yeah. louts, you know. We shouldn't think about them as arbitrary rules, but we should think about them as God showing us the way to live fulfilling, long-lasting life in the world. We believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, and as shepherds, we're jumping into the fray. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the conversation. Well, we're all back together again. Sands Van Mentor, he is out this week, and so it's three of us gathered together for uh, the final session in our God Rules series, the Tenth Commandment. So, Kyle, say hello to everybody. Hello, I have outlived Van. You have. You've I've survived Van. Yeah. <laughs> I've survived it. This was an endurance race, and uh, <laughs> Van was the first fall off. Okay, and also Keith Lowry's with us today. I'm here, and I'm ready to chat. <laughs> and and uh, I'm Ben Lowry, and. As we said, this is the final in the Ten Commandments series. The Tenth Commandment, Kyle, give it to us. Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's good. I saw a funny cartoon, and it was Moses holding the Ten Commandment, you know, panel as God is sort of inscribing on it, and he's reading. And it says, you shall not covet, you know, it's got dot, 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 and Moses looks up and he says, we're being oddly specific, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny list of things yeah. that, yeah. and you can't covet the ox or the donkey or... Yeah. Um, well, there's there's probably something to be said for the the value system. It tells you a little bit about what that culture valued, that those are the things that are put in there. Because, man, back in that time, an ox could get some straight-up work done. (laughs) You might want one of those. So every commandment has its um, positive sort of restatement, you know? Like, the first commandment, you have no other gods before me, you could sum up as, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's this sort of positive expression. The positive, I read this recently, the positive expression of, you shall not covet your neighbor's ox is eat more chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's what they had in mind when they came up with that. definitely. So how is the Ten Commandment, the Tenth Commandment, rather, different from the other nine? It's it's a different sort of a thing, isn't it? Yeah, so the Tenth Commandment is the internal commandment, you can say, to, to some degree, in the sense that a lot of the commandments beforehand... Um, with the exception of perhaps the first. Yeah, I was going to say um, first, uh, yeah. It are, are all uh, action-oriented. You know, do not have a graven image. Uh, do not bear false witness. Do not steal. This one says, hey, guess what? Just in case you were wondering, 
the Ten Commandments are not just about behavior modification. They're about your heart. Mm. Um, God is much more interested in capturing the whole person rather than simply uh, setting out a list of rules that everybody has to sort of adhere to outwardly only. Yeah. What else? You got any thoughts on that? Well, I I I have questions, I guess, as as much as thoughts. So questions that need answering. I think. Well, first of all, I think Kyle is on to something important. But also, um, one of the questions I've had, just sort of rolling around in my own head, is: Does coveting uh, necessarily is there a distinction between coveting and jealousy? Mm. Does it necessarily imply an intent to acquire, not just not just viewing and wanting what your you know neighbor has but actually determined to figure out a way to take it from him or does it is it really just a a form of jealousy in which you're looking at that and saying wow I wish I had what he has I think my my take is that covet coveting is uh sort of has sister and brother as a sibling sins that sort of yeah. correspond to it. So jealousy would be yeah. in the family of, yeah. of coveting. Greed would be in the family of coveting. Uh, avarice would be in the family of coveting. Yeah. Discontent is in the family of coveting. Um, yeah. But, you know, so is God merely singling out coveting and saying, hey guys, listen, um, we could talk about greed and avarice and those things, but coveting is really bad. Yeah, well, so don't do that. Like, is that what he's saying, or is he merely doing something like the move that Kyle's making? Not only is it what you're doing on the outside right. that people can see that matters, but I I get to be lord of your heart, right? And specifically, I need to be lord of your heart over what you desire, and specifically over what you desire that other people have. So there's uh, something interesting to me is everyone's always seeming to try to pin down what is the quote-unquote original sin. You know, for a long time, people always thought, like, the original sin must have been sex. I don't know where they got that, but that seems to be something that people believe. Uh, I think probably the closest we've got probably is commandment number one. But honestly, all of them, except for maybe adultery, could be in the running. And I think coveting might be one of the best options simply because the first thing that we see happen in the garden with Adam and Eve is Eve looks at the fruit, something that belongs to God, not to her. And she wants it specifically because it is something God has that she does not. She she listens to the serpent's uh, temptation that, hey, you can be like God if you take this from him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that moment before she steals, interestingly enough, uh, it leads to all the other commandments. Um, yeah, and she wants something from God that he's specifically reserved for himself. I think I think what you're saying is getting maybe at something that um, we were talking about a second ago. In what's distinct about coveting, coveting specifically is, and it's bound up in the language of the command here. Whenever God says you cannot, he doesn't say you cannot covet that wife. You cannot covet that ox. He says you cannot covet your neighbor's hmm. wife. And so coveting specifically has is desire that places the self at the center of the universe to the detriment of another, to the detriment of one's neighbor. Okay, let's so so this is the two great commandments, right? Jesus right. says love God and love your neighbor. So if the Ten Commandments, like we've said in the past, are some kind of a social contract, 
at some level or a kind of social contract, then maybe God chose covet here in this context specifically because we ha- he's, he's making sure that everyone's looking out for the well-being of their neighbor specifically, mm-hmm. not just themselves. Right. So in, in along those lines is, this is another one of the questions that's been rattled around my head, and I, I mean, I have some opinions about what the answer is, but I'm interested in what you guys think, and that is, uh, what if my coveting is not to do something with those things for my own benefit, but to benefit someone else? What if I covet mm. my neighbor's donkey because I want to give it to someone who needs a donkey? Well, then you are Robin Hood. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, this is a. This, I, I would say but, that that's not coveting. Well, okay. Well, let me let me maybe Personal. push back. Let me push back on that for just a second, though, because one of the things that I think is inherent to what it means to covet is coveting is inherently self righteous, because it says I could do better with what that person has than they can. I deserve what they have more than they do. You look at what your neighbor has and says, "Well, you know, if I had it, X Y Z would be better." And so you're either assuming you're more righteous than your neighbor and you'd take care of the ox better, or you need it more than your neighbor does, and so he should have just given it to you. You deserve Maybe. it. Maybe. I, I mean, I think, there's, I think that there's that kind of coveting. There's that kind of heart. But sometimes coveting is just, I really want what he has. Well, And right. it's not because I think I deserve it, but I think it's specifically tied to my own self-interest. That's what I would say. Uh, and so if, for instance— one of the great—leave leave off Robin Hood, because this is a whole rabbit trail there, but let's take Jean Valjean, for instance, from Les Rob, because everything comes back to either Lord of the yeah. Rings or Les Rob. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jean Valjean, in the beginning, steals a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving son. Okay? He's not coveting the bread. He, coveting is, I basically have—I think, I think the preconditions for a covetous heart are— um, personal dis- sinful discontent. I have a wife. I just want his. I have bread. I just want his. I have a donkey. Like I I have a lot in life. I have a lot. I have not right. not a lot as in many <laughs> like things. Many, but I I I have been given a lot from the Lord. Yeah, a portion. A yeah. portion. He, um and yeah. I I'm, I'm discontent with that. So I I I don't Here, know. Here's more what I was getting at. Here's more what I was getting yeah. at. I wasn't getting at the starving child problem and sort of the moral dilemma that someone faces in trying to do that. I'm getting more at someone who says, uh, I have big ideas about the way the world should be run, and I think we should take the fruit of that man's labor and put it in service to my big ideas. Mm-hmm. Is that coveting? Yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's in the family. Yeah. yeah. Like I, jealousy. Yeah. It, I would call that... Rest- redistributive coveting yeah and even (laughs) and even discontent because i'm not i'm not content because i can't implement all my big ideas because i lack maybe like the resources to do everything i want to do so i'm going to take your resources because i know better how to put them to use in these grandiose you know world-beating plans yeah and that's why i would say it'd be it's it's inherently self-righteous or maybe even proud is maybe the better way of self-centered and arrogant at least yeah, because you're Presumptuous. saying— Presumptuous. So another classic example from Genesis of this kind of thing uh, really ends up being Cain and Abel. The first—not only was the first sin covetous in some sense, so was the first murder, more centrally the first murder. The first murder was 
a brother, Cain, looking at his other brother, Abel, seeing something good God had given him, the acceptance of his offering, and saying, well, wait a minute. Since this, according to his mind, is a zero-sum game, apparently only one of us is getting received, uh, I don't want him to have it because I should have it, and I could do something good with it. Yeah. Whatever motivation he has behind that. And so he's willing to get rid of his brother in order to implement. So I, I, I agree. I think that Cain and Abel is a cautionary tale about um, sin that crouches at the door of our heart. And the lesson that God gives Cain is that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. And so sort of keeping the tiger of discontent or jealousy at bay is a difficult task. And what we'll find, I think, in the course of our discussion is that the sinful condition of our hearts is infinitely nuanced. (laughs) Um, And so we, we we could walk down all of the various paths of, well... Coveting could be this, or coveting could be that, but coveting isn't this, and I think we're sort of doing positively what a lot of people over the years have done negatively, and hmm. saying, well, I'm not actually coveting if all I'm doing is this. Right. So our, our effort to try to narrowly define one, like, what is this, what is it only? Maybe a, 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 a natural inclination, but maybe not an altogether healthy inclination. I, I, I would say Kyle's first instinct was probably good at some level that here we're dealing with the condition of our heart. You know, we've placed, we said at the very beginning that when God says you shall have no other God before you, we've, we have replaced God with the self in our time. And the God that we worship is the self. And that becomes nowhere more clear than in the 10th commandment which gets at the heart, I would say, of all the commandments. And when you are on the throne of your heart, then you view the world and everything in it as though it should belong and could belong to you. And so I I, I think whether you do that from a position of sort of moral self-righteousness or um, justified uh, theft, you know, we're going to take what that rich guy has and give it to all these people, and he doesn't deserve to have it, and that's that's still that's still the same it's born of the same sinful heart i've thought you know i i along those lines maybe we should talk about we we've kind of danced around this idea of socialism versus capitalism and this socialism is sort of gr- gaining popularity among some of the younger generations um and so is it true that capitalism breeds guilt I mean, sorry, breeds greed. I don't feel, don't I don't feel, feel guilty? guilty about it at okay. all. <laughs> is, it, is it true what people say that capitalism is sort of the seedbed for greed and avarice? Um, well, it's, and, and if not, what is? I think I had a conversation with someone just the other night um, who is a student studying uh, in this country uh, from another country, and we we talked about economic freedom, and one of the things I said to him in that conversation is that um, I think the data is pretty clear on this. I mean, it's convincingly, overwhelmingly clear that if you care about the poor, you had better care about economic freedom. Um, so economic freedom is not entirely the same as capitalism, but I don't think... Um, 
if you are in favor of economic freedom, you can be against capitalism per se. Um, so it is sort of an inherent manifestation at one level of economic freedom. And so my, my point here is that, yes, anything, anything can make you greedy. Poverty can make you greedy. Believe me, mm-hmm. I've been extremely yeah. poor in my mm-hmm. life. And maybe and, maybe the danger of and, poverty and inflamed morally. by desires for yeah. other things, you know, for more than I had, and mm-hmm. so that whole discontent story. So it's not just the opportunity to create value and grow wealth that that makes you greedy. Mm-hmm. Um, other things can make you greedy. So it's it's it, it's a it's a circumstantial condition in which that's possible. But you could live in a communist society and be greedy. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, a, there's a movie called The Enemy at the Gates, and that's, a, that's the exact point that the movie actually ends up making at the end is there's these two comrades in arms in the Soviet army, and it ends up that at the end of the story, one of them has been jealous of the other the entire time because the woman they both love favored his friend. And he said uh, towards the end of the movie, there will always be something to covet yeah. from your neighbor. Um, yeah, I there's was, a. Oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say there's another movie. Speaking of movies, that you've probably seen called Interstellar, Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan, and the whole idea of Interstellar is that the world we're living in is dying, and we need to build a better world. Mm-hmm. And in their search for a better world, they're looking for this perfect planet. We could think of this in terms also of like political systems, right? So the political political system we have, we don't we don't like. Maybe you think it's dying, and so you're going to build a better political system, and you're in search for for one that works best. Well, one of the guys who'd left before everybody else in search of the best possible world was a guy named Doctor Man, and Doctor Man. Um, sends out this message that he's found the best world, right? So in our context for this conversation, he's found the best political system. And there's witness given um, by one of the characters in the movie that Dr. Man is the best of us. Well, the name is is very, very deliberately chosen. This is a great example of what we might call cinematic theology at, at work. Dr. Man is mankind. And here's what you find. You can leave the world... And you can leave the planet and look for a better world and try to build a better one. But at the end of the day, you're going to bring man with you mm-hmm. and and human nature. Well, Dr. Man turns out, spoiler alert, to be a not-so-good guy um, and nearly wrecks, nearly wrecks the whole thing. And so I think, I think what we find, whether you're talking about socialism, which has been tried, or capitalism, which is being tried, you're always bringing man with you. Yeah. And so it isn't the system that breeds those things. It's simply a different stage upon which the sinful heart of man plays itself out. Yeah. Um, and, and so the question is, which system, I guess, has the better, um, provides the opportunity for virtue to thrive as well? So one of the things, one of the best descriptions or cases I think I've heard for capitalism is um, capitalism rewards those who bless others or capitalism uh, offers rewards to those who meet the needs of other people. So in order to thrive in a capitalist society, you have to create something or have something or give away something or sell something that someone else actually wants and someone else actually needs. Um, One of the things that we found in communist societies is they would have massive over surpluses of goods that nobody wanted 
or in that have massive deficits in things that people desperately needed to survive because they weren't listening to what the neighbors actually needed. They were producing for the sake of appearance or for the sake of quota or for the sake of uh, pride. And so one of the good things about capitalism is it forces you to go, okay, hey, you want to eat? Your neighbor has to eat first. There's something there's something important about yeah. that, I think. Yeah, I, I think that um, to your question, Ben, about uh, what's the what's the system that in which people are most likely to thrive mm-hmm. and or develop virtue? I mean, there's there's an argument to be made that the Ten Commandments sort of outline that system, right? Mm-hmm. And it includes things like uh, don't murder and don't bear false witness, i.e., uh, the rule of law mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and just and true justice, mm-hmm. um, not uh, not a um, uh, some form of uh, modified no modifiers something. around justice, right. just justice, right, right. Um, don't don't steal, mm-hmm. which presupposes, as we talked about, I think in that particular podcast, presupposes that God intends for private property, because if He doesn't, then this is nonsense talk to say don't steal. And I would argue the same thing as presupposed by the whole coveting thing. Th- this whole notion of things that are your neighbors. You, we, we do not all, we're not all just awash in a pot of shared communal resources. Yeah. People own things, and God intends for people to own things. And more than that, he intends for us not to resent or right. seek to change the yeah. ownership of things, right? Yeah, I've, I've always thought this is a, an important point to make because there's a, there's a conception of justice that I think Christians are um, disposed to. And there are some books in the Bible, like if you, you can look at some of the minor prophets, for instance, and get this idea. But um, but the, the idea fizzles. It's a bad interpretation of the minor prophets if it sticks. It has to fizzle out in light of other things in the in the biblical text. And here's that idea of justice. It's that those with power or privilege are ob- obligated to extend justice, and that those without power and privilege are entitled to receive justice. And that justice is the giving of something away, right? The like equity tends to be the um, um, a synonym for justice in that system. Here's the interesting thing about that, though. I think you hit the nail on the head early when you talked about poverty. This is a commandment, I think, it's it's geared toward all of us, but the poor in particular, those without power or privilege, right, may be uniquely predisposed to the tenth to, to, to sinning against the tenth commandment. God is God God God's expectations to live morally and justly are across the board applied to the great and the small. Um to the mighty and the weak. And so the Ten Commandments are a great reminder of that. Cain, Kyle, to your point, he wasn't the successful one. He wasn't the one that was favored. He wasn't, and yet he wanted what his brother had and hated and and despised his brother because he had it and he didn't. And so whatever that was, if it was coveting or if it was something else, we had, you could say there was a power differential at play. Cain slaughtered his brother. Mm-hmm. Because he had something that he didn't. That was the first murder, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think your point is is valid. Maybe it's worth saying, um, because justice is such a perverted and diluted concept in our current moment. 
that from a biblical standpoint, justice is kind of can be summed up by saying, don't put your thumb on the scales. Equal treatment without regard to influence, privilege, or um, uh, economic reality. I mean, the Bible explicitly forbids uh, bending justice to serve either the poor or the rich. Right. Um, and, and, and it's obvious, like, we, we, we ought to be first in line to say, don't consider the wealthy and their argument against the poor because you may have something to gain by that. That's unjust. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and so we should be first in line to say that. Right. But we can't make the mistake, to your point, of swinging the pendulum to the opposite side and saying, we have to take the argument of the poor against the rich, you know, just because they're poor. Right. That's right. not just <laughs> either. Right. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And so this whole don't put your thumb on the scale uh, metaphor is is very different than what's being said in our current culture. Our current culture is actually saying, um, put your thumb on the scale in favor of various disadvantaged groups because that's compensating for injustice in the past, yeah. right? So, so let me throw out a, a current example and, and see if y'all agree with the way I'm, I would relate this to covetousness. So kind of the big stir right now as at the time of this recording um, is that there's been a huge forgiveness of, of loan debt for, for college students. And a lot of people have very different reactions to this. Christians in particular are sort of an all over the map in terms of how they respond to the government forgiving $10,000, $20,000 worth of loan debt uh, that college students have accrued. Um, and one of the arguments I've seen to me is a, a good example of someone completely misunderstanding the whole coveted situation, kind of similarly to the capitalism and socialism debate is people will say well why would you be jealous that i got this benefit why would you why would you be so mad at me for receiving this benefit from the government because that's what if you would have wanted if you were in my position right sort of the way it's it's couched in a lot of terms and to me it's sort of like it's that's flipping the whole equation around because my my response would be called deflection right it's it's well why would you assume that you can demand of your neighbor their goods to pay for your success i sent Mm -hmm. i sent ben a meme the other day he and his brother shows a bunch of coal miners sitting on one of those little low riding cars that take them down in the coal mine and the subtitle on the meme was me and the boys heading into the mine to pay off another one of those kids gender studies degrees you know <laughs> yeah, and, and this, so, this is kind of to your point yeah. that, that somebody's paying for it and it if if it's not the if it's not the kid that borrowed it it's somebody else well it's also like um jesus was and the pharisees were kind of right that they were very concerned with who had the authority to forgive anything mm. Mm. right and um and so like if 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 kyle borrows ten thousand dollars from me and he owes me ten thousand dollars and then Jeremy shows up and says, Kyle, I forgive your debt to Ben. <laughs> it's like, wait what? a second. What? <laughs> you know, how did that happen? What, what are we doing here? Um, that, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Does, if something is owed, then before yeah. the Lord, isn't that thing still owed? So some people may have had their college debt forgiven by the government, but if the government doesn't really have the moral authority to forgive that, then all those people may actually, before the Lord, still have a debt that they have not paid to the person that they borrowed from. 
um, uh, like morally speaking, eternally speaking, hmm. and to not pay that back would be wrong. Hmm. And so I, the, the question still in my mind is out there, did the government even have the authority before God to forgive yeah. those kinds of debts? I don't, I'm not sure that it Right. Well, and, and my bringing up is not even to argue whether we should or shouldn't be finding ways to alleviate debt. Oh, I know what you're trying to do, Kyle. Oh, you know. <laughs> Listen, I, 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 I paid you off my loans. You wish you did. Right? I paid off my loans, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, the point being that there seems to be this twisting around to Keith's point in our culture where we say uh, justice is getting that which we would desire to have rather than necessarily saying justice is getting what we deserve. <laughs> there, listen, there we human beings, and this I think gets back to Ben's question of what what's a system that contemplates uh, setting people up for thriving and success. We have a bottomless capacity for twisting our own perception of our vices into virtues into convincing ourselves that the the thing that we're doing that's selfish is actually unselfish or something that we're owed, right? Well, and I so do it I, every Thanksgiving when I eat the last piece of pie and save someone else the guilt of having all right, those calories. Yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> right. But here's here I actually said this to the same person I was talking to earlier about, I was talking about earlier who's a student here in an email. I made, I made the comment that... Um, I don't think any political or economic system that doesn't either implicitly or explicitly um, accept the reality of the fall can yes. possibly create an environment for any sort of thriving yeah. or justice. So right? I, I, I read a book called Vindicating the Founders, and it's a, really, it's a pretty good book. It's kind of academic, but it's very good. And one of the things I was struck with uh, by our founders— was in, in the things that they wrote, whether it was their private communiques or public documents, they they had a very clear understanding of human nature, and mm-hmm. they were in no ways um, uh, illusioned about or yeah, they're very realistic, very very realistic about what people were capable of, and and the way that they built their system was to sort of circumvent cr- human corruption as as much as yeah. possible and provide a platform for human greatness, for, right. for virtue to flourish. And so it's which, a very difficult which thing, tightrope to walk. At one level, the, the danger of, of, of Rousseau mm-hmm. and, and his, you know, his ideas culminated in the French Revolution or were sort of embraced in the French Revolution, but the, the whole notion that you start out uh, pure and good and are only ever corrupted by society, that whole notion is complete inverse of the of the creation story in Genesis and the sort of the first principle set yeah. forth there that we're hopelessly wicked. Rousseau yeah. must never have spent any time around preschoolers yeah. <laughs> because preschoolers are some of the most covetous creatures on, on God's <laughs> earth. Yeah. Is gimme, you you gimme. get a bunch of them in that space and there's one toy and you have created uh, a catastrophe on yeah. your hands. I love the Disney movie uh, Finding Nemo where I, I love the seagulls <laughs> because they're all standing around going, mine, 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 mine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's like a room full of two-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. It's a room full of 42-year-olds, yeah. um, believe it or not. And that's, what I think, where we need to get to here in this conversation because that we don't outgrow no. a covetous heart. And the whole idea of trying to pin my sorry heart on the system that I'm in is very much like Adam and Eve saying, 
the, ser- the serpent made me do it. Well, that woman yep. that you put here made me do it. It's the right. system. Yep. The system made <clears throat> me do it. You know, I w- we wouldn't be like this if it weren't for this sorry system. And the reality is we, you know, like we are the malcontents of the system, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And we're the reason that that those kinds of things exist in the world. And so I think we need to turn in the conversation a little bit and start looking at ourselves somewhat. Yep. Um, and, and not so much at the system, broadly speaking, but at the, the condition of the human heart. I have a funny story I want to share kind of as we move into this. Um, so an old preacher was dying, all right? On his deathbed, he sent a message for his banker and his lawyer, both church members, to come to his home, Okay. When they arrived, they were ushered into his bedroom. As they entered the room, the preacher held out his hands and motioned for them to sit on either side of the bed. The preacher grasped their hands, sighed contentedly, smiled, and stared up at the ceiling in silence. For some time, no one said anything. Both the banker and the lawyer were honored but perplexed that the preacher would ask them to be with him during his final moments. The preacher had never given them any indication that he particularly liked either of them. They both remembered his many long, uncomfortable sermons about greed, covetousness, and avaricious behavior that made them squirm in their seats. Finally, after several long minutes of silence, the banker asked gently, Preacher, why did you ask us to come? The old preacher mustered up what little strength remained and answered, My final wish is to die in the manner of my Lord. Between two thieves. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, you know, the, the the spoiler alert here, I guess, is that even preachers can have uh, covetous hearts. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's not just the bankers and the lawyers, but but all of us, no matter what we are, what we're doing, are prone to wander. Um, Calvin has this great quote. He says, "The mind." never entertains a wish for anything after which the heart is not excited to pant. Mm. The mind never entertains a wish for anything after which the heart is not excited to pant. I, I want to I talk a little bit about attention, okay? Um, because, you know, capitalism and socialism aside, there's this other thing that I think really probably better describes the world we're living in, and it's the idea of consumerism. Mm. And so if, if we are and we, uh, we embrace kind of a worldview of consumerism, what, what would that look like? What, what does that mean? When we talk about being, a, you know, I mean, consumers are a thing, and we're all sort of consumers at one level, but what is the difference? What is consumerism? Is it a good thing? Is it a, a bad thing? At a basic level, I would call consumerism the preoccupation with what one has bought as sort of a measure of success. So like when I think of consumerism, I think of the person who's always asking questions of, well, have I demonstrated my success by how pricey my shoes are or how expensive my watch? You know, there's a, there's another video out kind of right now about a preacher scolding his congregation for not buying him the latest watch. <laughs> um, and so so to your point, even, even preachers can fall into this. Um, but also I think it's a – it is a belief. Consumerism is a belief that I can purchase happiness. Yeah, that's a good way to – that's a good way to – it's a belief system at yeah. some level. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Well, I think, um, you know, there's this famous moment right after 9-11 when everyone was up in arms and outraged about the event. And 
uh, you know, wanting to do things, you know, enlist, uh, you know, go to war, whatever. And George W. Bush made some comment that's been widely panned that what everyone needs to do is go out and go shopping. And um, what he, I think what he meant by that is that um, we need to continue to engage in commerce and, and, uh, but that sort of spawned a whole bunch of reflections on, on uh, what the concern was in, in the political class, at least at the time, was that it would alter people's buying behavior and, er, and thereby sort of create some problems for the economy. But we have built a society and economy that's rooted in continuous consumption. And um, so I think that, and, and then if you look at kind of what goes on in media, a lot of media is designed to uh, foment a desire for things we don't have. And the biggest technology companies in the world today have an advertising-based business model, which is essentially an entire business model oriented toward uh, increasing dissatisfaction mm-hmm. in their users so that their behavior will be modified to go out and, surprise, consume yeah. things. And so there is a, I mean, we're we're in the midst of a gigantic flood of manipulation related to fomenting our appetites yeah. for for things. I mean, we rightly decry porn mm. in you know in some of these discussions and in Christian circles, but we We never we, ask any questions of Pinterest. Right. And we never <laughs> ask any questions of HGTV. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so which are all sort of about the business of setting your eyes on setting other your appetites things you don't have th- on front things you don't have fanning into flame desires yeah gosh right. i may Discontent. never be more covetous than when i'm walking through a target um because yeah. it just sort of displays to you man i am a terrible decorator i don't know how to make my home look good i don't have all that fancy food in there um because it becomes very much a belief that man my life would be so much better if i could buy this thing hmm. And if I could put that in my house and make people believe, oh it's, man, it's that, isn't he stylish? It's, yeah, it's that discontent aspect of coveting that Ben talked about at the beginning. Yeah, I would say, I would say consumerism, um, to summar, summarize what we've said so far, is a society that wears its materialistic heart on its sleeve mm. yeah. um, and, and, and dignifies that as a lifestyle. So St. Paul in Romans 8, teaches new Christians uh, the difference between per- a perishing mindset and an eternal mindset. Yeah. Um, he, he actually uses, the, he uses the, the idea of mindset when he says, the mind that is set on the flesh reaps the flesh, but the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit reaps eternal life. And so here's what I'd like to talk about a little bit along the lines of what we're setting our minds on. He says, um, when he says that, I, I, I kind of want to ask, when we ask, what are you paying attention to? It's like asking, what are you giving your mind to or setting your mind on? So in what ways might our attention and our culture be compromised or conditioned in a peculiar way toward discontent? Mm. Let's think about that. What are, what are the things, I mean, we spend hours and hours and hours of our lives giving our attention to things, Pops, to your point, that demand our attention, that manipulate our attention. Um, what are some of those things that stand out to you? 
so I think you mentioned you, you mentioned Pinterest, and there's probably some there's some healthy examples with that, uh, specifically because Pinterest is sort of touted as this platform where everybody shares their ideas with each other. So it's sort of built with this ethos of generosity, like, hey, let me share my free ideas with you about how to do this or how to do that. Um, but the problem is it's also chocked full of ads. <laughs> it's chocked full of stuff you can buy from a store that's better than this thing that your neighbor's trying to help you build with you know, popsicle sticks and bubble gum. Um, and so a, a lot of what we do what makes it so consumptive is just the fact that it's just chocked full of advertisements for stuff we don't have. Um, I think a similar thing can be said for any of the social media sites that are free. It's free because there's ads that people can sell on it so that everywhere you're going, every time you flick your finger across the screen of your phone, it's giving you a new reminder that there's something you don't have that can make your life better if you yeah, have it. Yeah, it's like, so if I, have, if I have a project in my backyard, like maybe I've got a patio I want to work on or something, and I don't know what to do with it. I'm not very creative-minded, let's say. Um, and so I think, well, where can I find some ideas? And I go to Pinterest and I look for those yeah. ideas. It's like, okay, no harm, no foul. Yeah. But, but there's also this concept in the Proverbs of the fool who walks down the street in the evening of the wayward woman. And it's like, he, you should know your heart better and yourself better yeah. than to put yourself in, into a temptation context right into a place where you know you're going to be tempted to do something wrong yeah i i think that's i think when when we as humans um and maybe i think i think we could say predominantly pinterest is sort of a female um driven platform when when you wander down streets of desire Hmm. aimlessly you you should beware what what your heart will uh, the desires that are fan to flame in your heart. Yeah, you should know yourself well enough to steer away from that if you don't need to be there. So I think another thing that uh, people are consuming is outrage, uh, and it's not a material thing, but it's a, you know, the attention getting um, focus of social media. In all its manifestations, not just Twitter or Facebook, but Pinterest and Instagram and, you know, not so much LinkedIn because no one really ever goes there. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. They're, the Partly what they use to draw people in and, and retain their eyeballs hmm. is outrage. Um, and so you can see this. Um, you can, I mean, if you just look at the... You know, in the early days, because I'm so old, I was around in the early days of the internet, and um, and actually a grown up at that time and doing real technology work in that space, and um, and back in the day, you know, uh, links were just explanatory little subtext. There was no such thing as clickbait. Now, you know, you go out to any major news site, and there, uh, there, the text around the links are are really uh, suggesting that there's been some big fight between people and, you know, so-and-so slams so-and-so, you know, or, and it's, and we're not talking, I mean, it's like the entire community has become a room full of junior high kids and, um, and 42 year old, to your point, Ben, junior high kids. And so this, um, enticement of based on outrage to retain attention because, I think there's what they've learned uh, 
technologically is that outrage uh, is a much more reliable uh, attention getting device than uh, contentment. Yeah, there's um, there's a, a passage of scripture that says the human heart is uh, deceptive and desperately wicked beyond measure, right? And so there's this idea that the human heart can both at one and the same time be desperately wicked and yet deceived into thinking that it isn't. Yeah. And I think we've, I think we've got something like that going on mm-hmm. in the culture. We, it's this idea that we don't really get human nature anymore. We've sort of lost sight of what we are in our hearts. And so who we become on social media and when social media sort of spills out into the streets the way we've seen it do in, in these uh, recent years, um, it's just an example of uh, the human heart coming to life, you know, yeah. um, and expressing itself. And we're all about expressing ourselves, yeah. you know. I mean, that's that's the thing about our world is... Yeah, well, I, would, I would say probably a good rule of thumb to know wh- if the place you're at is one of those streets of desire, like you like you said, Ben, um, is, is everyone in this place only putting their best manicured foot forward? So like if you're on uh if you're on YouTube and you're watching a vlog of someone's life it's not the difficult parts it's not the unfortunate parts it's all the glamorous uh it exceptional parts the same thing with Instagram same thing with Pinterest honestly all these places they're only putting out that which is the most worthy of your coveting Mm. <laughs> right so they're basically <laughs> saying hey these are all the things about my life that worthy you should... expansive being expansively defined there yeah fair right. fair enough <laughs> worthy in a in in the smallest denominator possible basically they're saying hey this is the part of your life that you should actually either admire or desire that you had instead mm-hmm. of me mm-hmm. and so if you put yourself in that situation you should just know that's that's where your heart's going to be led to go yeah 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 i i i think we need to sort of spin the conversation toward what's the cure here. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's a lot easier for me to regulate my behavior than it is to regulate my heart. Mm-hmm. And if we're just saying don't steal or don't murder, then it's like no sweat, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> there's policemen. There's my people around. I don't want to do those bad things and get caught, you know. So no problem. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. But. When we're talking about the sort of interior life mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. no one else can see, or at least we'd like to think that no one else can see, um, we be, that's where I think our, the worst versions of ourselves kind of exist. And it's a good thing that thoughts are private, right? And no one can read thoughts. There's a lot of science fiction about reading people's thoughts, and it never really goes well. Um, you kind of get to know people for yeah. real. Yeah. And there's something about social media, I would say, that sort of creates that same illusion of mm. anonymity um like like whatever i'm sharing on social media i'm behind some veil when i when i say it and so i'm it's it, there's it's almost like a risk-free social environment yeah that hasn't been good for human interaction i yeah. would say but but it doesn't so to say all that may be true but it doesn't really do anything about our hearts and helping us regulate our hearts. Where does that come from? I, I think it's redirect. In part, it relates to redirecting our attention. I I had a acquaintance, somebody I'd sort of know a little bit, who'd written a uh, an article about his concerns about uh, artificial intelligence, and it's from a Christian 
point of view, and and he, he kind of made the point that he, his worry was um, that it would, you know, basically create an environment of pseudo humans um, that looked like humans but weren't actually humans, which is sort of a way of saying Twitter bots. But anyway, um, <laughs> I I wrote my own blog post and kind of reflecting on his comments about artificial intelligence and machine learning and kind of my uh, involvement in that. But my concern about artificial intelligence is primarily related to the how it's going to make uh, it possible to use technology to be even more deceptive of human beings. But my response, my recommendation at the end of my blog post which I think applies in this context as well, is that we need to shift our attention away from those um, environments in which deception and cultivation of discontent and all these things are made possible. And I, I hearken to Paul's words to the Philippians, where he, he gave us a list of things to dwell on. Uh, to put it another way, he gave us a list of things toward which we should focus our attention. Because it's really more than just, he says, think about these things, but the grammatical construct is sustain your attention, sustain your thinking on these things. And it's a list of really good things, you know, things, whatever's beautiful, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, whatever's worthy of praise. Mm -hmm. he, He gives a list of where to shift your attention to. And I think, yeah. To inform your heart. There's, there's the, um, one corollary or extrapolation from that passage you're talking about is don't think about wrong things. Right. But what he's actually saying, I've often heard that passage taught as, so don't think about all these bad things. You know, it's like, that's that. well, that kind of goes without saying. He's actually saying, think about these other things. Intentionally and, think. Yeah, right. cultivate an attention for these things right you know yeah and so if we're if we're taking the situation that the 10th commandment puts us in which is don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his donkey or his ox or his servants uh the 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 antithesis of that would simply be hey why don't you pay attention to your own wife why don't you pay attention to your own fields your own house Stop mm-hmm. Stop spending all of your attention looking at what other people have mm. and stop spending so much time worrying about what you could get from and, the store. And don't but, walk down those streets. Yeah. yeah. Don't walk down those streets anymore. You know, you fool. Yeah. Yeah, so... Talking you to know, you, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm walking down streets of desire yeah. and I can't stop myself. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, but it also comes down to, it's sometime, in some cases, it's kind of like, something that somebody has that that we want. But in other cases, this whole attention problem is that we're being drawn into drama that Mm. is um, artificially and wholly disconnected from ourselves. So, you know, people are spending their time, you know, obsessively reading, you know, I don't know, the latest tweet storm on conflict between, you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, you know, uh, whatever celebrity-like... Uh, who are they? Yeah, right. Um, whatever celebrity-like drama that people can focus on, they're drawn into that. It, it's di- disconnected from their lives. Yeah. It's disconnected from anything meaningful about their pursuits. And just, I mean, just though focusing in, in, in an online life, I mean, there's just a huge human... Uh, 
creative potential that's lost so, in the hours people spend yeah. on this stuff. So you know? I was joking when I said, who are they? It's hard to not know who they are, you know, living yeah. in the world, and if you're paying attention at all. But I would say that there's a there's a, a fear of not being in the know. We yeah. probably need to sort of let go of yeah. Yeah. And, and cultivate the virtue of ignorance hmm. um, and sort of be glad to not know who Kim Kardashian is. And like the one who doesn't is probably better off than all of those who do, yeah. Uh, it's in in some ways, you know yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah. kind of leave off that social pressure to be in the conversation, you yeah. know. And it's like, no, you just, be quiet, you know, butt out, yeah. Be ignorant of that. You're better off. Focus your mind on better things. Yeah, you yeah. know. I so in the same way that we said, there's a relationship between contentment, or um, what did we say? Uh, between covetousness and greed, right? There's these sort of yeah. family of vices. There's also probably a family of virtues um, like contentment and gratitude, yep. okay? Um, Paul routinely says, pray always with thanksgiving. And so if we're asking the question, how do we help regulate our hearts? I would say one of the answers that Paul gives is through prayer, but praying intentionally with thanksgiving and in mm-hmm. and, and, and some kind I think I think we have to ask the question which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which comes first, the prayer yeah. of gratitude or actual gratitude? And and listen, here's here's how this has worked in my life, okay? When when my kids get gifts, guess what I have to tell them to say? <laughs> thank you. So I, I teach my kid to say thank you, and then as he learns or she learns to say it and they're told to say it, that generates within them, hopefully, a heart of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And they begin to learn gratitude through the liturgy of constant saying thanks. Yeah. And I, I think the same thing is true. I think it's kind of true of what Paul's saying. If you want to help regulate your heart, then be on your knees always before the Lord in gratitude. Thank him for what you have. Yeah, it's not for nothing that Paul says the failure of the people in Romans 1 was that they didn't acknowledge God, ask God, or give him thanks. Uh, you know, Beck and I have come to see intentional gratitude as a, really a defining um, spirit, aspect of our spiritual walk. You know, many years, you know, I'll, I'll tell a little bit about this, but, you know, some of you, probably some of you who are listening even know that uh, we lost our daughter. Um, our daughter died uh, a little over two years ago, and uh, and in some ways it was self-inflicted. I mean, she didn't commit suicide, but it was a long descent into uh, dissipation and uh, wasted life. And uh, early on in those years, we were just living in darkness. I mean, we were so uh, overwhelmed by the loss and the and the fear and the depression that went with uh, having a child who dismantles her life and um, and we, we we a friend recommended a book that we read that basically argued for intentional gratitude as being a central facet of a Christian walk mm-hmm. and so we just started practicing this saying, reminding ourselves of what we had to be thankful for and saying thanks for it mm-hmm. to God on a daily basis. And I can tell you that that intentional gratitude in the midst of a flood of suffering 
was a turning point for mm-hmm. us in um, <clears throat> in understanding and remembering, honestly, in remembering what we had to be thankful for mm-hmm. when the things that outrage you or depress you or or cause suffering seem to shout in your life, mm-hmm. being intentionally grateful can be transformative. Proverbs 16.33 has been... Um, kind of front and center in my thinking lately on an, for a number of reasons, a series that we've been teaching in and this podcast and other things. But anyway, it's an it's a interesting proverb. It says, it's on the casting of lots. And Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so when we think about our lot in life, you know, whatever lot lands in our lap, to be grateful, I think, at one level is to be conscious of the fact that what we have has come from God, is a gift from God. It's not acquired through my own cunning or um, effort or genius. You know, there's a funny movie. Well, it's not actually a funny movie at all. There's a funny scene in the movie Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart stars in that movie. And he prays at the beginning of the movie, and he says, Dear Lord, we... We thank you for the harvest. We thank you for the food on our table. We thank you for all of this. We worked, we broke our backs to get it, but we thank you for it just the same. You know, um, it's kind of like, well, he's, he's, he kind of thinks he did all this, and then, but I guess if we have to be thankful to God, there's maybe he did something. You know, but I think when Christians pray continually to the Father with gratitude, one of the things we're doing is teaching our hearts to see the Father of lights. All good things come down from the Father of lights, we find in Scripture, and um, which is, by the way, the opposite of the Father of darkness, in case you, you didn't yeah. catch that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah. Well, and I was going to say, too, in, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that the fulfillment of all the law, whether it's, we're talking about... Uh, murder or adultery or any of these things uh the opposite of that is to love your neighbor that love causes no harm and so you know if we're looking at you know how do we make how do we flee covetousness i think one of the things we can do is intentionally learn to love our neighbor in one of the ways you can do that more specifically for coveting i think is just build in the discipline of celebrating the success of others mm-hmm. you know there there was a trend for a while where people would give a present to the kid whose birthday it wasn't, the sibling whose birthday it wasn't, so they wouldn't covet the present that the birthday kid was getting at the family birthday party. And it's like, no, 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 no. You need to teach that child. You need to, and, and we, being adults, need to learn this lesson as well, to celebrate what God is doing, the lot God has given in the lap of someone else. Yeah. You're, well, you're headed in the exact right direction to talk about love. I want to jump right back to contentment real quick. Yeah. Before we move too far forward, because there's a passage in First Timothy, chapter six, that that Paul nails this conversation, and he says this: First Timothy chapter six, verses six through ten. He says, "Now godliness with contentment is great gain." Okay, so if we're looking for gain and discontent is lack of like looking at someone else coveting their gain, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, covetousness, right, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So I love that idea of true gain for the Christian. It's like we have to learn to redefine value, Mm. to redefine gain. Godliness and contentment is true gain in the life of the believer. So, so, so um, it occurs to me. So, first of all, that implies that there there can be godliness, discontented godliness, and I think there there is a s- sense in which that's actually true. You can you can be godly, but have an unsettled um, heart, and and maybe it's a maturity thing. It's kind of a growth thing. But I think that's it's an interesting thing that he 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 separates these from each other and encourages the the having of both mm-hmm. instead of just try, the having of one. Well, right? he talks elsewhere about the apparent those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, and then he says their god is their belly, and they glory in their shame. So these are people who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power are people who have um, great hunger and desire. And whose lives are driven by that hunger and desire. Well, and so, so the other thing that was going through my head when you were talking about this is, um, when you think about it, coveting is is almost the inverse of what we as believers uh, embrace as the central truth of our existence, which is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was kind of as I got to thinking down that path, I was remembering this verse and this scene in, Re- in Revelation 4 and 5, which is at the throne of God, the center of all glory and power and authority in the entire universe and the eternal world. Um, and standing at the center of the throne in that scene is a lamb that has been killed mm-hmm. as a sacrifice. And... Um, but it's standing, it's alive, but it looks like it's been sacrificed. And, um, and this notion that at the center of God's power and authority and majesty is sacrifice runs so counter to any notion of coveting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's all giving. And I, w- I would say that to your point and to Kyle's point a moment ago about love, what you're talking about is a step beyond mere contentment, and as if contentment is merely anything, you know, right, something. Yeah. It's it's contentment with godliness is great gain, Paul says. Right. But but what you're talking about is love. Yeah. You're talking about a, a godly Christ-like love. So this is this is where we need to head here. Um, and and we're we're running long on time, but um, but I do think that this is the capstone of this whole conversation on the Ten Commandments, and this deserves some some airplay. So I'm going to read a quote from Calvin. It's two quotes from Calvin's section on the Tenth Commandment combined together, and uh, get your thoughts on this. He says, The observance of the commandments consists not in the love of ourselves, but in the love of God and of our neighbor. That his is the best and most holy life who lives as little as possible to himself, and that no man leads a worse or more iniquitous life than he who lives exclusively to himself and makes his own interest the sole object of his thoughts and pursuits. 
the end of this precept is that since it is the will of God that our whole soul should be under the influence of love, every desire inconsistent with charity ought to be expelled from our minds. The sum, then, will be that no thought should obtrude itself upon us, which would excite our minds, excite in our minds any desire that is noxious or tends to the detriment of another. All our conceptions, deliberations, resolutions, and undertakings ought to be consistent with the benefit and advantage of our neighbors. That's a, that's a pretty darn good definition of what it looks like to love your neighbor. Yeah. To have all of my thoughts and delibera- deliberations and resolutions aimed outward. Yeah. And to not, to not hold on to any um, sense of entitlement whatsoever. That's a different way of living. It's, it goes beyond contentment. Yeah. I think this is why Jesus was able to say that the two greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. Mm. Because he knew, as Paul points out in Romans 13, that if we truly love God, we won't be tempted as much to create another God. Because there would be no one that we would love more than him. And we would never take his name in vain because that name is sweet to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would never seek to steal from our neighbor because all we want is to do good by them. Mm-hmm. And so it's that consuming love. And this isn't, you know, it's, it's not as concrete as maybe we would hope, but that Jesus calls us to love as the fulfillment of the law is such a higher calling and such a sweeter, uh, such a sweeter thing to, to pursue. You know, here's the thing, though. God and other people, that's what we're built for. We're, we cannot possibly bear up under the weight of our own worship and love. We can't do it. We're not built for it. it. Only others and God. The image of God and others, I guess, maybe being the sort of driving force behind what it means or why we're obligated to love others, but um, we're just not built to love ourselves and worship ourselves at, you know, exclusively. This outward focus, in some ways, is the inverse. It's the opposite of consumption, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's and, a good point. And you're, you're outflowing something instead of consuming something mm-hmm. and um difference between consumption and contribution yeah yeah um contributing to someone else's well well-being right is is a better life aim <clears throat> than consumption and and i just want to say i i hope where you can all think expansively about what it means to do good for your neighbor because it's i mean i think oftentimes when we we say these things that the the limited image that's conjured up in people's minds is giving some material thing that I have or, you know, helping them with some task or something like that. But you can do good to your neighbor by writing stories that are true. You can do good to your neighbor by building high-quality, lasting furniture. You can do good to your neighbor by being an excellent craftsman Mm -hmm. in some other area. You can do good to your neighbor by painting beautiful paintings mm-hmm. and that that are true because you can't separate truth and beauty mm-hmm. uh so so there's this whole but all of these are outward facing tasks they're right. not they're not consumption oriented they're not entertainment they're not self-entertainment oriented mm-hmm. they are truth telling and beauty making and and serving of and benefiting of others and mm-hmm. so when we think about doing acts of love i don't th- for our neighbor it's not constrained to 
helping my next door neighbor mow his lawn or helping someone change their flat. There's, there's the whole living out our calling to, to, uh, promote truth and beauty. Well, and and so to go all the way back to where we were earlier, then, um, maybe there's a system, you know, what system, uh, provides the best opportunity for people to leverage, uh, those kinds of vocational pursuits for the good of others. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and what doesn't, this is another question to add to that. We've, we've really reached probably the end of our time and the end of this series, but I would like to hear some closing thoughts from each of us. I have something that's been, that's been gnawing at me. I want to share, but I'd like to hear from you guys also. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to share about, um, maybe the 10 commandments in general or how Christ informs the way the Christian digests the 10 commandments or something along those lines? So, I'll go first. And one of the things I love is uh, in the Gospels, Jesus comes and says, I have come that the law may be fulfilled. And when I, when I go through a, a study like Ten Commandments, I'm always astounded at the level to which I fail the, com- the commandments that are placed before me. I am astounded by the, the realization that these commandments were made because I am the type of person who is covetous, who uh, creates other gods in my heart, who does all of these things. And so it's, it is a comfort to me, two things. First, that Jesus accomplished all of these things on my behalf because he knew I could not. And then he empowers me to follow after him in actually fulfilling them as well. There's a deep mystery in that, mm-hmm. that Jesus both fulfills them on my behalf because he knows I will fail, but then he calls me into following him in actually fulfilling them within my own life, mm-hmm. in whatever small degree that I am capable yeah. by His Spirit, and to me that's a great comfort. Mm-hmm. They're they're a beautiful thing uh, to meditate on because, um, as you said earlier, Ben, you know they're often expressed in as a negative prohibition, uh, but there's a there's a a uh, affirmative uh, version of it, which is you know the Ten Commandments call us. Uh, to love God and to honor him as God. They call us to tell the truth. They call us to speak truthfully and be true in our relationships and have fidelity in our relationships and be unselfish in our relationships and be content with our lot in life. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, on and on, these are, all cultivate um, goodness. And, um, and it's a beautiful, it's a laudable, and a comforting thing, really, to uh, to be reminded that there's a there's a way to think about our lives that's completely at odds with the the shouting that we have in our ears coming from the broader culture. Yeah, I would uh, I would add to that um, in closing that the Christian lives out the Ten Commandments because he alone, she alone, has the law of love written on their heart. And there's a great story um, when we look at how do I get there. I hope, I hope that anyone who's listened to this series has been confronted by their own sin because that's what the Ten Commandments are good for. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what the law is good for, Paul says, to show us our sin. And so walking through a series like this, if, if all you can see are the sins of others around you, then you've probably, you've probably missed the point a little bit. Um, yeah, there are sins of others around us, but at the end of the day, 
my heart is desperately wicked in need of conversion. And I think that's the starting point for, um, for keeping the Ten Commandments. And so there's this great story that C.S. Lewis tells in um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader about a little boy named Eustace. And Eustace is um, the worst. He's insufferable. He's, he has no friends. He cares only about himself and what he gets out of life and what he's accomplished. And he, he thinks only of himself and, and never of others. And he actually becomes, through, through the curse of touching the dragon's gold, I guess, he becomes a monster. And he gets to live out in sort of hyper-realistic fantasy form who he truly is. He's a dragon, he becomes this dragon, and he, he realizes that he is lonely and cut off from his comrades, from his friends, his cousins in this case, and Prince Caspian. And um, he, he really learns some powerful lessons in the midst of this. He learns, first of all, that uh, there's great joy to be found in helping others and being part of the common um, effort, contributing to the common effort. Um, as a dragon, he's learning this. He's being taught this. But he comes to a point where he, he's weeping about um, his, his <laughs> dragonness, And he wants to become a boy again because he wants to have friends again. He wants to have friends for the first time, I should say. And Aslan shows up. And As- Aslan tells him, he tells Eustace, he says, you have, to, you have to undress. And so Eustace pulls at his dragon skin and steps out of it. He steps out of it. But then he looks and notices that he's, he's still clothed in it. Three times he steps out of his own dragon flesh and finds that he's still clothed in it. And I think that for many Christians, they, they, they want to be free of their flesh, but they find that they're doing it on their own power. And every time they think they've stepped out of it, they, they look to discover that they're still wrapped in it. And what Aslan says is, I have to undress you. And so Eustace lays down, and Aslan's great claw comes down and starts carving in Eustace's chest, and it's incredibly painful. And he says, it went nearly down to my heart. And as the scales start to fall away and the skin starts to fall away, he says, it's almost like peeling a scab. It hurts, but it's good to see it go. And then he stands up and there's his dragon flesh, uh, dead and black, lying on the ground next to him. And he's, you know, naked as a baby standing there. And (laughs) Aslan, who is Jesus, (laughs) leaps upon him. And hurls him into the water. <laughs> and um, Eustace flops around in the water, and as he does so, um, he realizes that he's refreshed and healed, and joy um, floods his soul. And so here's the point. Um, we need circumcision of the heart that only Jesus can give. And it comes not through a management of our own behavior, but through true conversion of the heart. Um, Let Jesus have your heart, your affections, your loves, your attention, your desires. 
bend those to his will, give them over to him. And it will hurt to say goodbye, to stop walking down those roads of desire, streets of desire, Kyle. <laughs> but but, um, but for those who do, they'll find joy and healing and, and restoration. Um, we hope that the God Rules series has been good for everyone who's listened. It's been good for me. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.